I'm Nick Cowan, and I'm telling tales. The Tale of Urashima Taro, the Fisher Lad. Hey, you boys, stop that now! Urashima Taro advanced towards the group who huddled around the small, near round shape of a turtle the back of which was receiving blow after blow from the howling mob of six or seven boys who were six or seven years old. You are treating that poor creature terribly. You're going to kill it. The boys, who all seemed to delight in being unnecessarily cruel to the helpless animal, took no notice of Urashima, continuing to harass the small creature. Urashima Taro was born in the small fishing village of Mizunoyi in the province of Tango on the shores of old Japan. He was descended from a family of fishermen and had the skills of all his ancestors coursing through his veins. It was said that Urashima was so skilled in the arts of fishing that no person in all the land could land more fish than he, and that in a single day he would bring home as many fish as any other man would bring home in a week. However, as much as he was known for his great skill in fishing, Urashima Taro was known doubly for his kind heart. His whole life he had never hurt anything if we ignore the fish, either large or small, and he had been laughed at when his friends would engage in the cruel play of hurting innocent animals. Today, Urashima found himself, now a man grown, struggling in vain to teach the younger boys that hurting innocent animals was a terrible act. One of the older boys turned to him. Who cares if it dies? We don't. Here, lads, hit it! Hit it harder! A boy struck it with a stick, a second kicked it, hurting himself in the process. A third threw a fist-sized rock onto the turtle's back. The poor creature had withdrawn as much of itself as it could into its shell, desperately hoping that the barrage would end. Urashima stopped, surveying the situation. He could not hit the children, he could not frighten them. They knew him to be a gentle-hearted soul. He had an idea and spoke up, this time smiling as he did so. Look, boys, I'm sure you are really good, kind young men who wouldn't ever wanted to cause another person pain. Most of the boys looked thoughtful at this, particularly in being called men. Urashima continued, And you see, I've been looking for a turtle just like the one that you found there to be my companion. I would like so dearly for him to become my friend. What do you say? Will you hand him over to me? The older boy spoke up, clearly the leader of this group. You... Want to be friends with a turtle? That's nuts, that is. No, we found it. It's ours. We caught it. Why should we give it to a weird turtle fancier like you? Hiroshima continued to be reasonable. You're right, you're right. It's it's your turtle and you found it. And you're right, you can do what you like with it. But I'm not asking you to give it to me for nothing. Look, I'll I'll give you some money for it. And and why not let Uncle Hiroshima buy it off you? At this, Urashima produced a small string of coins. Each coin was punched through with a hole that allowed the string to be passed through and tied. Look, boys, you can use this to buy whatever you want. You can do much more with this money than you can with this poor half-dead turtle. The boys crowded together for a few moments, their muffled conversation indicating that money was indeed much more interesting than a battered reptile. And so it was that the ringleader turned back to Urashima with the turtle in his outstretched arms and said, OK, then, uncle. Let it be as you have said. Turtles can provide us with a small amount of sport, and you have been a very kind and generous man to us. Thank you. With this, Hiroshima took the turtle and handed the money to the boy. The boys excitedly scampered away, shouting, hooting, and declaring what each was going to do with his share of the small fortune they had won today, and soon were out of sight 
and out of earshot. Hiroshima watched as they went, turning to look out over the lagoon as the sun set golden over the water. <sighs> you poor thing, he muttered. Poor thing. There. Look, you're safe now. The turtle seemed to respond, its head withdrawing from its hiding space and looking levelly into Hiroshima's eyes. Hiroshima spoke gently. They say that a stork will live for a thousand years, but a turtle will live for ten thousand. You have the longest life of any creature in this world. And yet you were almost in danger of having that life cut short by those cruel boys. You're lucky today, little one. I've saved your life today and I'm going to take you back to your home in the sea, just as soon as I've made sure that you're not too injured. Hiroshima carefully examined the shell of the poor turtle, but aside from a few scratches, it didn't seem to be damaged in any meaningful way. Do not let yourself get caught again, Hiroshima chided the little turtle. There might not be anyone to save you next time. The kind fisherman walked towards the shore and then out onto the rocks that jutted out into the sea. Hiroshima released the turtle back into the water, and in the twilight of the late spring light over the seas of Japan, the little animal sank with a plop. Hiroshima turned for home. The following morning, the weather was fine. The sky overhead open and blue, with the merest hints and flicks of cloud to promise that no bad weather would visit Tango today. Hiroshima got into his small fishing boat and gently pushed out to sea, throwing out his line as he did so. He soon passed many other fishing boats and called greetings to friends as he made his way out into the deep sea until they were lost to his sight, and his boat drifted further and further upon the still blue waters. For some reason, Hiroshima felt especially happy today as he drifted out into the sea. He wished that like the turtle from the day before, he had 10,000 years to live, and not the short lifespan of a mortal man. Hiroshima! Hiroshima! His name rang out across the late spring seas. Hiroshima stood up and, straining his eyes in every direction, thinking that it must have been a boat that he had passed and had followed him, and yet no boat was in sight. Again the call, Hiroshima! Startled at this, Hiroshima ducked down, afraid that some force wanted to trick him. It was then that he saw with surprise that a turtle had come alongside his little boat and was looking at him earnestly. He realised as he saw the scratches on the turtle's back that this was the very same turtle that he had saved the day before. Well, Mr. Turtle, Hiroshima asked, was that you calling my name just now? The turtle nodded and said, yes, it was I. Yesterday, because of your good and honourable deeds, my life was spared, and so I have come to offer you my thanks, and to tell you how grateful I am for your kindness to me. That is very polite of you, Mr. Turtle. Come up into my boat. I would offer you a smoke, but as you're a turtle, I suppose you don't go in much for tobacco. The fisherman laughed at his own joke and was joined in the laughter by the turtle. No, I prefer sake for my relaxation. I don't care for tobacco. Is that so? asked Hiroshima curiously, who hadn't heard that turtles enjoyed alcohol. I'm afraid that I have no sake on my boat at present for you, but uh, come on up into the sun and warm up. I know you turtles enjoy that. And as he was correct, the turtle climbed aboard with the help of the fisherman and after a little chatting about the boat and their adventures the day before, the turtle asked, Have you ever seen Rinjin, the palace of the Dragon King of the Seas, Hiroshima? The fisherman shook his head. No, the seas has been my home for many years, and though I have heard of the Dragon King's realm under the sea, I have never set eyes upon such a wonderful place. 
It must be many days' travel away, if it exists at all. Really? You've never seen the Sea King's palace? asked the little turtle incredulously. Then you have missed one of the most wonderful sights on this whole world. It is far, far beneath the surface, right at the bottom of the sea. But if you let me take you, we will soon reach it. If you would like to see the Dragon King's palace, then I will be your guide. Little wavelets lapped against the still boat. Hiroshima sighed. I would love to go there, and it is most kind of you to offer to take me, but you must remember, I am only a simple mortal. I don't have the power of swimming that a sea creature such as you have. The turtle stopped him. You don't need to swim yourself. If you will ride on my back, I will take you without any trouble at all. But how is it possible for me to ride on your back? Hiroshima asked. Only yesterday I held you in one hand. It may seem crazy to you answered the little turtle. But I promise I can do it. Come, just try. Climb on my back and let's see if it's as impossible as you think. As the turtle finished speaking, Hiroshima looked at its shell and was amazed to find that it was now so large that a grown man could easily sit upon its back. This is extraordinary, declared Hiroshima. Mr. Turtle, he added in a serious tone, I will now get upon your back. And with a shout, he leapt upon the back of the turtle. For his part, the turtle was completely unfazed, as if this were an event that occurred on a daily basis, and stated, Now we shall make our way to the palace of the Dragon King. And with these words, the turtle dove into the sea with Hiroshima on his back. Down into the blue depths, the turtle dived, the water changing from translucent to darker blue, darker, ever darker, as it turned towards the blackness of night. At last, far away in the distance, a glorious palace shone gold and silver, ruby and sapphire, the long sloping roofs arching away towards the underwater horizon. The gates of solid gold glowed with a faint shimmer of luminescence, and beyond them a path led to the great doors of the palace itself. Hiroshima asked in awe, Is that the palace? Nearly, answered the turtle. This is the gate of the realm of the Dragon King. You should be able to see beyond to the palace itself. Hiroshima was enraptured by the beauty and the wealth that was displayed before him. Never before had he set eyes upon any great palace, and this outshone all of man's architectural achievements. The turtle slowed as they approached the gates and stopped to allow Hiroshima to dismount. We must walk from here, he explained, and the turtle went on ahead of Hiroshima towards the gatekeeper. This is Hiroshima Taro from the country of Japan, the prefecture of Tango and the village of Mizunoyi. I have the great honour of bringing him as a visitor to the kingdom. Please show us the way. The gatekeeper, a fish no less, then led them through the gates and went ahead leading the way. Out came the denizens of that great city, the red bream, the flounder, the sole, the cuttlefish and all the vassals of the dragon king of the sea, welcoming the stranger with courtly bows. Welcome, they all cried. Welcome, Yurashima Taro. Welcome to the palace, the home of the Dragon King of the Sea. Welcome and welcome again are you, having come such a long way from such a far country. To the turtle, they also cried, Oh, turtle, we are most indebted to you for your great work in bringing Yurashima to us. The guide then turned to Yurashima. Please follow us this way. 
and the whole court became the guide and processed triumphantly through the doors of the great palace itself, losing sight of the turtle in the maelstrom of well-wishers and celebrants. Now, Hiroshima was, of course, only a fisherman from a small village, and we might expect that his ignorance of the ways of palace life might make him feel uncomfortable. In fact, he thought to himself how strange it was that he felt so at home in this most magnificent palace. Rich materials covered walls, treasures of nations both near and far decorated with images too numerous and too magnificent to discuss here, stood upon pedestals throughout the hallways and rooms of the palace, and yet Yurashima followed his guides through each room, courtyard and passage with a confidence he had never felt in his terrestrial life. Soon, Yurashima was ushered into the presence of the most beautiful woman whom he had ever seen. Her robes were of red and a soft green like the underside of a breaking wave. Gold threads glimmered through the folds of her gown, and her jet-black hair cascaded over her shoulders like the caress of the deepest night upon the shores of the kindest beach, whilst her eyes glittered and flashed as the light of the summer sun reflected on the waters of the Sea of Japan. And when she spoke, her voice held both the gentleness of the lapping of tiny wavelets upon the shore, but also the promise of the great power and majesty of a breaking tsunami upon the shore. Yurashima, forgetting all courtesy in respect to a lady so magnificent a station, stood before her, gazing in enraptured wonder, unable to speak, unable to think. Coming back to himself, he fell to his knees and bowed low, his head pressed to the marble floor, and yet the princess reached down and drew him back upon his feet and led him into a yet more magnificent and more ornate hall than he had yet seen, and drawing him onward, she bade, Sit here, Yurashima, up on the seat of honour, for it is my greatest honour to welcome you to my father's kingdom. Yurashima sat upon the cushioned throne, only too aware of how his poor garb must look upon this seat of red, gold and emerald. Yesterday you set free a turtle, and I have sent for you to thank you for saving my life, for I was that turtle. Now, if you like, you may live here forever in this, the land of eternal youth, where summer never dies, where sorrow never comes, and I will be your bride if you will have me, and we will live here forever in eternal happiness. Hiroshima's heart felt full to overflowing. The joy at knowing his small act had such a profound meaning to both this most wondrous and beautiful woman and that he had saved her, as if by chance alone from an appalling fate, filled with joy and half expecting that he would wake up at any moment to find this was merely a most magical dream, he responded, Thank you one thousand times and one thousand more for your kindness. There is nothing I could imagine or dream that would be a more glorious life to me than to stay here with you forever in this beautiful land. Beyond my ability to express my joy and wonder, this is the most wonderful place, the most wonderful day of my life. Whilst he spoke, a cortege of noble fish drew near, all dressed in glorious yellow ceremonial garments slashed with red filigrees, each woven in using a strange metallic substance Hiroshima had never before seen. One by one they swam silently with a stately air that is hard to describe. They entered the hall, each bearing a coral tray with delicacies sourced from the seabed. Seaweed, oysters, anemones so pale and so delicate upon the tongue that they dissolved into explosions of flavour, firework-like and magnificent. 
Sea cucumbers had been baked and sliced into delicate morsels and set upon small sticks with garnishing herbs atop. Urchins, algaes and jellyfish were likewise prepared with great skill and grace. The feast was laid before the couple as their marriage was set, performed and celebrated, and as the young pair pledged themselves in the ceremonial cup of wedding wine, music was played, songs were sung, and silver-scaled fish with golden tails entered the hall and danced. It goes without saying that Yurishima had never experienced anything so magnificent and wondrous, but it was that he had never even heard of a place, a time or an event that had ever been experienced by man or God, and he sat grinning, eating, drinking, and glorying in all that was around him, most especially his new, beautiful bride. When the feast was finally over, and the hordes of creatures dispersed to their own lands and seas, the princess asked, Would it please you, my husband, to walk through the palace to see all that you have joined yourself to? Oh, so, so much, my glorious star of heaven, Hiroshima repeated, still enraptured. And so they walked through the palace of the Sea King hand in hand, as the Sea King's daughter delighted in presenting all the wonders that neither time nor age, war nor famine had ever affected. The great palace was built of a pink coral and adorned with thousands of pearls, many the lustrous white that we see on shore, but also the rarer black also blue and a deep ruby red that had never been seen before by the eyes of men. Marble and gold were interwoven into the living structure of the corals, and it was clear to Yurishima that this great palace had been grown in a way that man could never hope to emulate. His heart and senses were overwhelmed by the beauty of the place. However, it was not until the lovers came upon the palace garden that Yurishima found the place where his heart would lie happily for eternity. Look, he cried to his bride, all four seasons are here at once. The plum and cherry trees stood to the east in full bloom as their blossoms rained down as an eternal hanami rain. Butterflies and nightingales flitted from tree to tree and flower to flower. To the south, the trees stood mighty in their full summer flush as the cicada and the crickets chirruped loudly. The west was as looking towards the sunset as golden maples in their fiery autumn finery gave way only for the glory of the chrysanthemums. To the north, the ground was silver white with snow, and bamboo were likewise blanketed, and a thick covering of ice lay over the pond. Each day that passed was filled with new joys and wonders. Yurishima's happiness was so complete that he forgot everything of his former life, including his home and his village. Three days passed without a single thought directed towards his former life. His reverie was broken by a statue of a great hook-shaped object which he encountered while touring the grounds. It reminded him of his former profession and the realisation that he did not belong in this underwater paradise married to this most beautiful of creatures. Turning to his bride and with a heavy heart, Hiroshima uttered these words, My mother, my father, I cannot stay here for I must be at home with them, helping them. What might have happened to them while I have been away? They must be so anxious, I must go back to them immediately. He bowed low to his wife and said, I have been so happy, my heart so filled with delight since the moment I came down to this land with you, Otohime-sama, for this was her name. You have been far kinder to me than any man could ever deserve. But I must go back to my old parents and care for them. If you cannot come with me, 
I must say goodbye. Otohime-sama began to weep, saying sadly, Is this place not enough for you, Hiroshima, that you must leave me so soon? Am I not enough for you? Why do you wish to leave me so soon? Stay with me. Oh, please stay with me, even for only a single day more. But Hiroshima had remembered his parents, and it is the custom in Japan that duty to one's parents is stronger than all other bonds, stronger even than that of wealth, beauty, and love that had been given openly to Hiroshima here below the ocean. Indeed, I must go. I am sorry. And do not think that I am leaving because I wish to leave, you know. Know that I must go to see my aged parents. Let me go for just one day, and I will come back to you once I have ensured that their needs are met and that they are not worried for me. There is nothing to be done, then, the princess replied sorrowfully. I will send you back today to your father and mother, and rather than trying to keep you here with me one day more, I shall give to you this token of our love to remind you of me. Please take this back with you. And with these words she brought forth a beautiful black lacquered box tied with a silk rope, which ended in red tassels. Hiroshima had received so much already that he almost felt obliged to take this further gift, yet he replied, It does not seem right to me to take yet another gift from you after all the goodness and kindness that you have laid out for me. But if it is your wish that I do so, of course I shall not refuse you. Taking the box from her, he asked, What is within this most beautiful case? In that box, replied the princess, is the tomate bako, the box of the bejeweled hand. It contains something very precious. You must never open this box, whatever happens, or else something terrible will happen to you. You must promise me that you will never open this case. Hiroshima duly made his promise that no matter what would happen, he would never open the box. With his belongings now arranged and the box safely stowed in his pack, Hiroshima bade his love Otohime-sama goodbye and went to the gate that was the interface between the land of the Sea King and the sea itself. The princess and all of her attendants followed him and there, once again, he found a large turtle waiting for him. Hiroshima quickly mounted the back of the turtle and was whisked away to the east. He looked back, waving to his beloved Otohime-sama, until he could see her no more through the curtain of the sea. The land of the sea king receded behind him, the roofs of the palace lost to sight, and now, with his face turned eagerly back toward Japan, he looked forward to returning to his home. At last, the sea turtle broke the surface of the sea, and again Hiroshima breathed free, normal, human air once more. The turtle had come within sight of the bay which had been Hiroshima's home and port for all of his young life. But as he stepped from the back of the turtle and waved it off as it returned to the Sea King's realm, a great fear crept over Hiroshima. He stood, looking about him, noticing the people who stared at him as they passed by. Why he recognised none of them, and why did they look at him as though he were a stranger here, in the land of his own birth? The shore upon which he had landed was the same, the hills were the same, and, and the town looked much as it had done his whole life. 
wondering what this strange sense might be, Hiroshima quickly walked back to his old home. And somehow even this looked different, yet the house stood upon the correct spot, but somehow subtly changed. The, the colour? The shape of the windows? Hiroshima couldn't say. Just as he reached the door, he called out, Father, I've returned! But before he was able to open the door, another man stepped forth, a strange man whom Hiroshima did not recognise. Perhaps my parents were forced to move while I was away, Hiroshima thought to himself. But worried, yet still polite in his confusion, he asked of the man who now stood staring at him in consternation, uh, Excuse me, but until a few days ago, I had lived in that house all of my life. My name is Hiroshima Taro. Uh, where are my parents whom I left here when I went away? An entirely bewildered expression took control of the man's face, and stuttering, he replied, What? Hiroshima Taro, you say? Uh, yes, replied the fisherman. I am Hiroshima Taro. <laughs> you mustn't make such jokes in this place. It's true, there was a man who lived here once in this village by the name of Hiroshima Taro, but he disappeared. His story has been told all around these parts since the day he disappeared 300 years ago. How could he possibly still be alive now? Hiroshima was understandably shocked, and a fear that this answered the questions that he hadn't dared ask himself about the people and village around him gripped his heart. Please, he stammered, please don't make jokes about me like this. I'm, I'm so confused. I really am Hiroshima Taro, and I certainly haven't lived 300 years. Until four or five days ago, I lived here upon this very spot. The man's face grew grave as he replied, You may or may not be Hiroshima Taro. I have no way to know. However, the man I have heard of by that name lived here 300 years ago. Perhaps you are his spirit come to revisit your old home. Why are you making fun of me? replied Hiroshima indignantly. I am no spirit. I am a living man. Do you not see my feet? And with that, he stomped his feet. Don, don. You see, in Japan, ghosts have no feet. But Hiroshima Taro lived here 300 years ago. This is all I know. It's written in the village chronicles insisted the man who could not, understandably, believe what Hiroshima said to him. Now bewildered, lost and unbound in time, Hiroshima felt that he was in trouble. He stood looking around him terribly puzzled, alone and with a horrible sense that what the man had said to him might actually be true. Nothing he saw around him was quite the same as he had left it. There were boats in the bay, of course, but none he recognised. People moved around the village, but none he knew. And there was a certain strangeness to the place that could not be explained. Was it possible that he was in a strange dream, or could the days that he had spent in the Sea King's palace not be days at all, but hundreds of years? If this was the case, then his parents would have grown old and died, never knowing where their son had gone. His friends were no longer in the land, and even the bullies who had hurt the poor turtle were long gone. Even their children and grandchildren would have grown up, bullied animals, and died since he had spoken to them. There was no staying here for him any longer. He must go back to his beautiful wife beyond the sea. He made his way back, carrying his few belongings, but which way should he go? How could he find his way back to the woman who had loved him? He could not find it alone. And suddenly, Hiroshima remembered the box, the tomato bako. The princess told me when she gave me this box never to open it and that it, it can contain something very special, he said to himself, sitting upon a large rock and opening his pack. But now I have no home and no friends, no family. I've lost all that is dear to me and my heart grows weak and faint. 
Surely she put something inside this box that will help me, something that will comfort me or, or bring me back to my beloved princess. There, there is nothing left for me now but this. Yes, I shall open it and look within. So his desires, his fears and his desperation all conspired to cause this good man to act in such disobedience towards the woman that he loved. He convinced himself that he was doing the right thing in breaking his promise. Slowly, cautiously, he untied the red silk rope. He looked around the lid, the sides and the underside of the box. Seeing nothing that would tell him of its contents, he laid it back upon his lap and slowly, carefully, lifted the lid of the precious, lacquered box. A small, beautiful, purple cloud of vapour rose from within in three soft, gentle wisps. For a moment it covered his face and enveloped his form as though loath to leave him, and then it floated away and dissipated over the sea. Until this moment, Yurashima had been a healthy young man of twenty-four years, but now he aged fast, his back bending, his hair and beard turning a white so bright it nearly glowed, his face wrinkled, his hands curled into claws, his breath came in rasps, and he tried to raise himself from the rock. The box fell away from his lap and landed upon the ground, cracking the lid and breaking the lacquer. The body of Yurashima fell beside it as the three hundred years that had been stored within took their toll upon this unfortunate, disobedient body. information and for suggestions of stories that you think that other people would like to hear go to www.tellingtalespodcast.com and may your own tales turn out well